What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of early readers, family reading, and web games. Our first guest is author Tracy Hecht, and we'll discuss writing early readers. Then we'll talk with Kathy Newton, an avid reader, about the importance of reading in your family. Our last guest will be Lisa Cohen, an expert about children's education, and we'll chat about the elements of a good children's web game. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with a reading of Mr. Jeremy Fisher and learn about comic books. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. As a reader and a teacher, one of the things I love about literature is its extraordinary capability to foster children's natural creative and imaginative potentials. Some adults tend to believe that the imagination is an extraneous and potentially hazardous realm for children. However, this is far from true. Imagination is an integral part of what makes us human. A hundred years ago, television, travel to the moon, and even cell phones were only visions of the imagination, and without it, these things would never have existed. As someone who values the imagination, it's hard for me to see it maligned by those who may not appreciate the number of extraordinary inventions and societal advancements that have come from creative minds. Most adults will realize that children have a natural imagination, so for me the important thing is for adults to make sure that they do not stifle children's creative potential. I believe that we, as caring adults, must ensure that through education and experience, young people's imaginations are nurtured. Building on children's sense of discovery and allowing them to soak up the world around them is exactly what being literate is all about. So let's get children to read, write, see, think, speak, and listen to help them build their imaginations. For me, reading is one of the critical keys to opening a child's mind, for it's through the pages of books that children have the ability to explore the entire physical world, as well as the whole world of the imagination. The process of making connections with a book is not simple, and young people need a lot of guidance along the way. As adults, we have the marvelous task of becoming the wizards or fairy godmothers that can show each hero their own path to the boon of reading. As we guide, we may never know what doors of potential have been opened or what our children do with them, but the only thing that truly matters is that we provide them with a wonderful experience that opened for them a window to their imaginations. And that's just the kind of thing we're really passionate about here at Rachel's World. Rachel's World. 
Parents spend hours and hours in their young child's life reading picture books and fostering a love for reading. As children develop that passion for books and become more independent from parents, they will need more engaging books that they can read all by themselves. That's where early reader books come into play. I have on the phone with me today Tracy Hecht, an author who writes just such books. Tracy, as we talk about your works, the the easy reader element of your works just fascinates me because this is such a really tricky age to write for, and it, it's a tricky age to capture. So tell me a little bit about why you decided to move down to the easy readers and, and make that part of the series as well. It is tricky. Sometimes I look at these early readers, and they're short, and they're simple, and they take so much time. And I think to myself, my goodness, like, why can't I write these more quickly? But the truth is that, um, you know, being able to have compelling storytelling with limited vocabulary and sentence structure is a challenge. And sometimes, you know, what happens when you go from picture books, which children have read to them, to early readers, oftentimes when you get to the early readers, because you're, it's about language and word acquisition and you don't have as much vocabulary at your fingertips, the stories sometimes suffer. And, um, and for me, when I was writing the middle grade books, I was hearing from families and schools that the younger kids wanted books that they could read to. And that they loved the characters and that the characters were, were something that they really wanted to engage in on their own. But the books were a little bit too hard for them just as a, you know, a, a chapter book. And so I started to experiment with the early readers. And, and, I, and I thought, you know, you know, having spent a lot of time watching kids learn to read, it can be, it can be frustrating and it can be scary and it can maybe not go as quickly as, you know, your desk mate at school. And so the idea was to make it a character-based storytelling structure that no matter whether or not it was hard or easy for you, you liked the characters enough that you would stay engaged and that the wordplay would be silly enough that no matter how serious you were trying to learn how to read it, you were still going to have a good time. And so from those two things, um, you know, really being being told by the audience, by, you know, librarians and teachers and booksellers and families that they wanted something for the younger kids, we we sort of decided we would do some early reader books, too. And I love them. I had no idea I would love writing them, but they're very visual. So the illustrator I work with does these wonderful pictures that help tell the story with the text. And, um, and I think in some ways... Um, it, it's like I should have thought of this right from the beginning because they, they work really nicely together and they're really fun to write. Talk a little bit more about that dynamic, particularly as a writer, how you approach it with the illustrations, because the illustrations are going to tell part of the story and not just the words. So what kinds of things do you maybe do differently as you write to find that balance? Well, even the way the book is created is different because when I write a middle grade book, I finish the manuscript and then we give it to the illustrator who, who pairs it with some very specific imagery at the beginning or in the middle of the chapters. But 
you know, it's not, it's not one of those things where the images are meant to help you decode. They're just meant to make the storytelling more fun. And the pictures are very sophisticated and done by a really wonderful artist. Um, the early readers, you really need the imagery to help with the cognitive understanding of the story arc. And so you need to have it almost be 50-50, whereas the pictures and the text work together to communicate in a way that really helps empower a kid to read. And so for that, the illustrator we use and the illustrations we use, which are different for the early readers, it's like a wonderful collaboration with this woman named Josie Yee, who, when I finish the manuscripts for the early readers, we sit and we have sessions where we talk about would help and how to lay out the words in a way with the pictures that will help the story be more engaging to kids. And then we bring a designer in once we start to develop the images and she helps us with layout because the whole point is to make kids feel really good that they're learning to read. And you can do that through design, um, both, you know, the size of a font of a word or um, the placement on a page and definitely through the imagery. So, um, you know, just the approach to the storytelling is very different in the early readers because it's so visual and it becomes much more collaborative. I love engaging my readers or my listeners here at Worlds Awaiting with this kind of process because I don't think oftentimes when we see a finished book or a, an easy reader and we look at that and we think, oh, here's this finished book, we realize how complex the process going into it is. So I really appreciate when authors kind of articulate this amazing process that, that goes into these kinds of things. As, but Rachel, I have a funny yes, story. Yes, oh, please do. I will share Sometimes, like my illustrator and I, Josie, who's just a super talented woman, we can't we can't even communicate through words. So I will literally video myself on my phone <laughs> around like the, the behavior or the movement or the thing I think would be funny. And this is, I mean, I'm telling you, the, the creation of the visual part of the storytelling of the early readers is such a blast with her because it really is like it becomes like this very weird like how do we make this come to life and we use everything not just verbal communication <laughs> ah that is marvelous that is such a wonderful approach and again just shows how much thought and effort both of you put into making this as perfect as you can to to reach these readers the one of the th connections I love is that there's this movement between the beginning readers and then up into up into the middle grade readers, which is great for kids, particularly as they're wanting to make this progression from the, the things that are easy when you're just learning to the things that are a little more complex. And then sharing them as families is just an amazing connection with that. So how have you seen these used in especially with with readers? What kinds of responses are you getting from your readers about how how they're loving the stories or how they're sharing the stories together? It's, it's, you know, look, this is a, one of the things I think books are so great about is that when you're reading a book, you open up conversation in ways that you wouldn't if you were just sitting at a table chatting because you have fodder. You have things that happen that you can talk about in terms of the way characters behave. And so for me, when you're learning to read and these early readers and you like these characters, you know, my, my second daughter taught herself to read because of Harry Potter, because we wouldn't read it fast enough to her. And so she wanted to know what was going to happen. So she almost taught herself to read by the Harry Potters, because as parents, we were reading it to her too slowly. 
And I think that's one of the best things about this program of the nocturnals is that as you're starting to read, you can be going into the middle grade chapter books and someone can read it to you, or you can try to fumble your way as a, as a, you know, a new reader in them as well. Um, and whether you're doing it independently or with a family member, a sibling reading it to you, a parent, a teacher, you can engage in the conversation of the characters at whatever level you're in, which I think makes it less exclusionary because oftentimes kids find that one person is capable of reading one thing and another kid's not capable of reading it, and they feel slightly excluded, especially at the age when they're learning to read. And the whole point is to make reading not exclusive, is to make it really fun for everyone. So the early readers in the middle grade books, I think, work really well in grade school, sort of, let's call it kindergarten through fifth or sixth grade, because it sort of allows everyone to engage in the storytelling and the character-based fun without sort of delineating between exactly how good or bad you are at reading, which kids are aware of in grade school. So much so. I think oftentimes we take for granted how much they're aware of that. And one of the things I do love about this progression is particularly once they've learned the vocabulary load of some of the nocturnal animals and all of that kind of scientific vocabulary, actually moving to the middle grade readers is a little bit easier because they've already mastered some of that extra vocabulary load. And then they can take on some of the other extra vocabulary that they wouldn't that they would need for the middle grade readers. So it just becomes a very lovely progression up through for all for all ages and all different reasons. Thank you. It's um, I like writing them. <laughs> I'm so glad because we love reading them. So tell us a little bit about what what are plans for the future? Why, what where are we going with all of this fun and excitement? Well, I think what we'll do in the book series, the middle grade books, right now there are four coming. Um, they're, they're, you can read them out of sequence, so you can kind of get anyone you want of the nocturnals. And then the early readers, you know, just because I think that they're shorter and at that age, when you connect with something you like, you're sort of con- like hugely voraciously consumptive around it. So we'll probably do more like 15 or 20 of the early readers. Um, And then, you know, I really, I believe in that if you have really good character-based storytelling, especially that's originated in literature, then it has the opportunity to go many places. And so, you know, we'll probably go younger. We'll probably do some picture books. Maybe we'll do some nonfiction. I think we're already talking about doing some TV and film, which is, you know, really fun. And and hopefully that, you know, it makes the, the world... Um, and the themes that we deal with, you know, sort of more universal in a way that, you know, anyone can access them, which is, as a writer and a storyteller, I think the goal, which is, um, it's fun for me. That is a marvelous goal. And I truly agree that for stories, wherever you can find the entry point is a good place. And particularly for our (laughs) multimedia generation that we have today, the TV, movies, books, all of that just kind of becomes one beautiful whole where we just have great storytelling and great ways for kids to engage with stories. So I'm excited to see what's coming down the pike. 
Oh, I will keep you updated. Yes. um, I'm so happy to speak with you, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much. We're so glad to have you, and we appreciate your your power in your writing and all that you do. I, this is one of my greatest joys of my life is to, to be able to visit with other people who are passionate about stories. <laughs> so I, I am kind of have fun geeking out about all this stuff too. So it's a good, it's a good thing on both <laughs> ends. <laughs> all right, thank you, thank so you again. Have a great day. Thank you again for all your time. Tracy Hecht is the author of the Nocturnal series. Now it's story time, and I'd like to share with you one of my favorite books, Mr. Jeremy Fisher by Beatrix Potter. Once upon a time, there was a frog called Mr. Jeremy Fisher. He lived in a little damp house amongst the buttercups at the edge of the pond. The water was all slippy sloppy in the larder and in the back passage, but Mr. Jeremy liked getting his feet wet. Nobody ever scolded him, and he never caught a cold. He was quite pleased when he looked out and saw large drops of rain splashing in the pond. I will get some worms and go fishing and catch a dish of minnows for my dinner, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. If I catch more than five fish, I will invite my friends, Mr. Alderman Tortoise and Sir Isaac Newton. The Alderman, however, eats salad. Mr. Jeremy put on a Macintosh and a pair of shiny galoshes. He took his rod and basket and set off with enormous hops to the place where he kept his boat. The boat was round and green and very like the other lily leaves. It was tied to a water plant in the middle of the pond. Mr. Jeremy took a reed pole and pushed the boat out into open water. I know a good place for minnows, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. Mr. Jeremy stuck his pole in the mud and fastened his boat to it. Then he settled himself cross-legged and arranged his fishing tackle. He had the dearest little red float. His rod was a tough stalk of grass. His line was a fine, long, white horsehair. And he tied a little wriggling worm at the end. The rain trickled down his back, and for nearly an hour he stared at the float. This is getting tiresome, I think. I should like some lunch, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. He punted back again amongst the water plants and took some lunch out of his basket. I will eat a butterfly sandwich and wait until the shower is over, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. A great big water beetle came up underneath the lily leaf and tweaked the toe of one of his galoshes. Mr. Jeremy crossed his legs up shorter, out of reach, and went on eating his sandwich. Once or twice something moved about with a rustle and a splash amongst the rushes at the side of the pond. I trust that is not a rat, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. I think I had better get away from here. Mr. Jeremy shoved the boat out again a little way and dropped in the bait. There was a bite almost directly. The float gave a tremendous bobbit. A minnow, a minnow! I have him by the nose, cried Mr. Jeremy Fisher, jerking up his rod. But what a horrible surprise! Instead of a smooth, fat minnow, Mr. Jeremy landed little Jack Sharp, the stickleback covered with spines. The stickleback floundered about the boat, pricking and snapping until he was quite out of breath. Then he jumped back into the water. And a shoal of other little fishes put their heads out and laughed at Mr. Jeremy Fisher. 
And while Mr. Jeremy sat disconsolately on the edge of his boat, sucking his sore fingers and peering down into the water, a much worse thing happened. A really frightful thing it would have been if Mr. Jeremy had not been wearing a Macintosh. A great, big, enormous trout came up, ker-plop, with a splash, and it seized Mr. Jeremy with a snap. Ow, ow, ow! And then it turned and dived down to the bottom of the pond. But the trout was so displeased with the taste of the Macintosh that in less than half a minute it spat him out again, and the only thing it swallowed was Mr. Jeremy's galoshes. Mr. Jeremy bounced up to the surface of the water like a cork and the bubbles out of a soda water bottle, and he swam with all his might to the edge of the pond. He scrambled out on the first bank he came to, and he hopped home across the meadow with his Macintosh all in tatters. What a mercy that was not a pike, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. I have lost my rod and basket, but it does not much matter, for I am sure I should never have dared to go fishing again. He put some sticking plaster on his fingers, and his friends both came to dinner. He could not offer them fish, but he had something else in his larder. Sir Isaac Newton wore his black and gold waistcoat. Mr. Alderman Tortoise brought a salad with him in a string bag. And instead of a nice dish of minnows, they had a roasted grasshopper with ladybird sauce, which frogs consider a beautiful treat. But I think it must have been nasty. The End Literacy starts in the home and has the potential to become a generational tradition. Because our parents taught us to be passionate about books, we teach our children, and then our children go on to teach future generations. It can become a wonderful cycle, but it requires work to make reading an important center in the home. We're in studio today with Kathy Newton, a mother, grandmother, and lover of reading. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Kathy, you have broad experience, personal experience that you're going to share with us today. And I I really enjoy having people on my show who just come and share their love of reading and their love of literature and their love of helping their kids develop these literacy skills. Because I think seeing these personal experiences help us to develop what might be right for our families when we're, when we're working with our own children. So describe for me a little bit to start out here, what, what does literacy in your family look like? What, what would you describe as being kind of the literacy practice or literacy engagement that you do with your family? Well, I think it started with me as a child. Um, I had parents who read to me. So it was just tradition. And we have four daughters. They're all grown now. Um, I'm a grandma. And from day one, we just started reading. Books were a number one priority. Um, Even when we were poor and starving, we bought books and went to the library and started reading and invested a lot of time reading aloud to, to our girls. And now the next generation, our Girls are reading to their children, and still as a grandma, I read, I read to them. So it's just been a very important part of our, of our family. 
I love that sense of building this literacy tradition, that it started with your parents and then went to your own family and now is being extended to your daughter's families. I think building that basis and building that structure is so important. And and really, those traditions are so important. So what are some of those specific traditions? Did you have any little special traditions that you did as far as reading went? Well, obviously, reading before you go to bed. It's just such a wonderful way to calm children down that, you know, they don't want to go to bed and get into bed and we'll read a couple books. And you kind of have to set a limit. I mean, you you know, we're going to do two books tonight or three books tonight. But it's definitely a calming process, which we all love. Um, Sometimes spontaneous things. Um, The children are in the bathtub and you pull out King Bidgood's in the bathtub and you read aloud. As the water's flying, you're, you're reading this funny book to them. So, all kinds of, of opportunities. Um, sometimes tapes. You listen to a tape in the car of a story being told. Um, and, and just any anything that just comes up, it, it, it's, it's always a good time to read. And you just need to seize those moments when they happen. I love that sense of it's always a good time to read. And I think sometimes when we look at these kind of literacy practices, we think, oh, this is going to take so much work and Uh so much effort. But it's not. It's just a natural part of your family and a natural part of your day and a natural part of, oh, I made this connection, right? The water's flying in the bathtub and here's this wonderful, fun story that I remember. And I want to share that in this moment. And so it really becomes more spontaneous, I think, particularly for your family. Is that correct? Absolutely. And sometimes, too, at the end of the day, they're almost too tired. So what a great way to turn that TV off, turn that iPad off, and say, let's read for a minute. Um, We have a three-year-old grandson who's very, very active. But right now, Curious George is everything to him. And the other day, the TV went off, the book came out, and we would still be there sitting. And so how can you explain this little boy who has to go all the time who will sit long enough to hear this very long story, some of which he doesn't even quite comprehend yet? So there there are those kinds of moments too. I really appreciate that sense of those personal connections too because I, I think that, that cuddling on the lap and that sitting next to a young person and, and sharing something that we love. Yes. I mean, we love Curious George too. And being able to share something that he loves just brings that wonderful bonding together. And this is more than just about reading and literacy. It's also about making connections as human beings and making connections as family members. Did you see that as part of your family, that this this practice of reading together and sharing sharing books together, bond you together as a family? Oh, absolutely. It, it does. And, and one thing we always do, and I do now as a grandparent, is birthday and Christmas, they get a book, okay? There's other things they get, but there's always that book. I always write in the book. I, I try to make it personal, some particular why I bought this book, what I think they might like about it, the date, and so that they have that. And we did that for our daughters growing up. And now, as they've established their own families, they've taken those books with them, with those little inscriptions of 20, 30 years ago that say something, and their kids get to read it. And they, they kind of get it that this is very personalized. This book is just for you. I picked it out for you. That's such a lovely tradition. And I love that it's scalable, right? It, it's not something you can just do when they're babies or oh. young people. You can do it when they're teenagers. You can do it when they're adults. Absolutely. There's that wonderful connection that builds across the age groups. Yes. And the older they get, the more 
I, I ask for their input. You know, what are you reading right now? Are you in a series? Should we get the next book in the series? Um, the, the littler ones are easier to buy for. But um, yeah, right right now, my my older boys, I need to I need to find out where they are because they're they're reading stuff that I'm not even familiar with. It really is important to, I think, making that personal connection again with the things that they're reading. So I, I really appreciate that you say, yeah, I asked them what they're reading. And, and even if it's not something you're not reading, that you still buy that and you still make those connections and are interested in what they're reading, even if it's not your personal taste. Well, you're not going to give them something that you know they're going to they're gonna set aside. And, and they're so fun. And frequently when I have them one-on-one in the car, my first question is, and they know this, what are you reading right now? And they'll tell me. And we'll share and I'll hear about it. And even though I'm not a fantasy person, and that's so much of what they're reading. I mean, I have I have four of them who've read every Harry Potter multiple times. And it goes over my head, but they want to discuss it. And it, and it becomes a bond between us. You're right. Those discussions and those conversations you have around books, how important do you think those are in in this process of building their literacy? Not not only when you're reading aloud as a young one, but also as they're developing and growing as older readers. Why do you think those conversations are important to you? Oh, I think they're critically important. Um, I'll ask them, you know, what's going on in the story? What what are they learning from it? What are they gaining from it? Um, literature is such a great way to talk about topics that are hard to just to bring up cold. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, even in, in books, there's picture books, there's so many things. There's a message here. What's it about? You know, um, there's a wonderful book by Don and Audrey Wood called Albert's Bad Word. And every once in a while, you know, as little children, you'll hear a naughty word. And rather than just sit and preach to them, take them to this book. Walk them through that process of finding more appropriate ways to voice. So it's just fun to talk to them. And that connection we make to help us kind of see what books are teaching us, I think, really helps when we have adult intervention into Mm -hmm. it. Because I think because we can see a deeper meaning sometimes. As you Mm -hmm. said, your your young boy, he isn't quite understanding Curious George and some of the things going on that. But you understand it. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. even though he may not be quite developmentally at that place, you can help guide him to see some of these deeper meanings and to see some of these deeper issues that might be pertinent and important for him to start understanding. You know, I think at this point he gets the idea of curious because he's curious and he may not understand everything, but that book right now has him. Three weeks from now, he'll be on to something different. And that's what you have to do is to focus in on where they are, what takes their attention, and go with it until they're willing to let go. And sometimes that means it's the same book night after night after night. And that's that's a wonderful experience too. That personalization, I think, is extraordinary. And I think as particularly as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, we have the luxury of being able to personalize mm-hmm. our reading mm-hmm. for for our kids. So as you were reading to your kids, what were some of what were some of your favorites? You've mentioned a couple already, but but what are some family favorites mm-hmm. that you have that uh, that you think your four daughters would say, oh, yes, that that's our family book? <laughs> Well, King Bidgood's in the bathtub, okay? Who can't love Don and Audrey Wood and the wonderful world that they've created? And the, the thing about that that they all love is that in the end, it's the child who's the smartest one. He's the only one who can figure out how to get that king out of the, out of the bathtub. Um, their book, The Napping House, that repetitive add-on, add-on until the whole thing falls apart. Um, a Bad Case of Stripes, about a little girl who was different, 
and she got ridiculed and laughed at, and she finally accepted the fact you we we should value differences in the world. Um, of course, you know, Good Night Moon and Runaway Bunny and um, Each Peach Pear Plum. I mean, all those books that sing song rhythm repetitive is what children love. And they make perfect read alouds. Perfect. And, and they make perfect read alouds at all ages. Yes. I, I know I know families who still read aloud Good Night Moon and other types yes. of things at bedtime, even even though they're teenagers, because that connection has been made. Yes. And I find my girls buying you know I've given them books that they had, but they they're they're buying so many of the same things and you know, what was the what was a classic twenty years ago still works today. Yeah. And and yet there's wonderful new things coming out every single year. So you just have to – it just gets added on to. That's my, my biggest problem right now is that there are so many new children's books that keep being published that I, I don't feel like I can I can keep up all the time. But there is just so much out there to share and be shared. As we close up our conversation today – Tell me just one thing. If you if you could have a, a new parent here in the studio and, and they said, oh, please, you know, you have wonderful experience and, and you've had success in this realm. What is one thing that you would suggest to this parent that they could do to start building this wonderful culture of literacy like you had in your family? Well, I'd probably give them a book that I had with my children. It's called Jim Trelease's Read Aloud Handbook. And it's now in its seventh edition. And this is a book that, in the beginning of it, talks a lot about why we read aloud. And the world's changed in the past 30 years. And he, he gets into a lot of the competition that we have in the world today for reading. And then he gives you a, a huge – half of the book is about possible read-alouds that you can do. And his emphasis is that kids are never too old to be read to. And that as long as they're reading, that's what needs to, needs to be happening, that that's good. Sometimes we get a little um, snobbish about what we think children should be reading. And his basic premise is if they're reading a newspaper, they're reading Sports Illustrated, they're reading. And that's those frequently are bridges from one level of reading to another. So that book, the Read Aloud Handbook, I really mean it. I've, I've given it as baby gifts before to new moms, and I think it sets people on a path, especially for those who perhaps weren't read to as much as children. Those of us who were blessed to be read to as children, again, we, we talked about tradition. It just becomes a, a given in any in your family. I will second that recommendation with Jim Trelease, a, a marvelous book for any reader, um, a parent, teachers, anybody out there who's listening. It really is a good foundational start. So perfect tip to end on. Thank you so much, Kathy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Kathy Newton is a mother, grandmother, and an avid reader. The biggest superhero movie event to date occurs this weekend. So now we have our producer, Cole Wissinger, to give us the literary scoop on how comic books have evolved over time. It is a great day to be a comic book fan. In the first four months this year, there have already been six blockbuster movies based on comic books, including, of course, the culmination of an 11-year, 21-movie journey in the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Avengers Endgame. It's poised to make quite a bit of money at the box office, meaning superhero stories aren't just for the nerds anymore. There are a lot of new people getting invested in the story of Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, and the others. 
But what if you don't have 45 hours to spare catching up on all these movies? Well, you're in a similar place as fans trying to get into comic books for the first time. When I was a boy, I grew up on Silver Age X-Men comics because that's what my dad had stored away in the attic. The strangest teens of all battled Magneto for the first time back in 1963, and the issue only sent my dad back 12 cents. Since then, the uncanny X-Men, X-Force, the Extreme X-Men, Excalibur, and plenty of other X-themed teams have graced comic book shelves in a mostly linear continuity. So do you have to start reading in 1963 to understand the Extinction Agenda storyline from the early 90s? Of course not. First of all, the comics themselves will help you catch up. If Professor X referenced a bad guy you didn't recognize because you missed that issue, Stan Lee would always pipe up in the corner of the panel reminding you that Juggernaut was introduced in X-Men issue number 12. Imagine if before the Avengers started fighting crossbones at the beginning of Civil War, there was a freeze frame and Cap looked directly at the camera to say, hey, this is Brock Rumlau, the secret Hydra agent that was first introduced in The Winter Soldier. Also, you don't even have to start at the very beginning. Different people have been taking turns writing and illustrating your favorite heroes over the years. Chris Claremont, for example, had a historic run writing for X-Men starting with issue number 94. And each time someone new picks up the pen, they generally start their own story. This is a great place to jump in and start reading. And if you're catching up, you don't have to buy issue by issue. Many of these specific story arcs are collected together in trade paperbacks. And you can even find some of the popular ones for free in the library. DC Comics were so concerned with the long history of their characters and that perceived barrier to entry of understanding what's happening that in 2011 they released The New 52, This trimmed down the number of titles released and started everyone back at issue number one. Now, for the first time in almost a hundred years, a new generation of fans could start fresh with Batman, Wonder Woman, and Superman. So if all these comic book movies have you or your kids curious, I recommend, like I do with most movies made nowadays, that you try reading the book, too. is constantly changing from how we get our news to what games we choose to play. As a parent, it can be difficult to keep up with what's beneficial to our kids and what's not. That's why we have Lisa Cohen, an educational expert in the studio today, to help us navigate web games for young children. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about websites and and games for kids on the web. What kinds of tips can you give us to help us navigate that uh, wide world out there? And it is. It really is challenging. And so one of the things that um, UEN, the Utah Education Network, did about six years ago is we wanted to take that um, really uh, difficult task um, away from parents. And we... we um, made a whole bunch of webs- websites into one place, one-stop shopping, we call it, um, where we took different categories. We took um, literacy, as in um, letters, numbers, me, so self-skills, 
and then um, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And we put those different games, interactives, into these categories so parents don't have to go all over because there's nothing more frustrating than um, your child going off or, um, you know, parents really trying to find a website with there's so many ads and um, and you don't know if the content is good, is yeah. a high quality. Yeah. So in order to vet all of these um, resources, we absolutely looked at PBS because, number one, there's no ads and it's researched. Um, and one of the games that I think is just the the um, poster child of games. It's called um, ABCD Watermelon. Mm. And it is, um, it's a obviously a literacy as in letters yeah. game. Um, but what it does is it scaffolds the learning. And that is a really important piece for parents to be aware of when they're looking at different games. Does it build on yeah. a skill? And so this game says ABCD, and then it'll throw out like school bus. And kids laugh. It's very visual. Yeah. And so they're seeing. And um, so that's another thing. Is it visually appealing? Is the animation good? Or is it real characters that are, you know, kids are wanting to get off somewhere yeah. because it's so boring? And then um, if they push the wrong one, this is what I love about this game and the PBS games, is that there's no loud buzzer. Eh, wrong. Mm. It's, um, it builds. It says, well, that's not right. How about, and it gives you the letter. Since you yeah. made the mistake, it says, how about... D. And so then can you find D? And then the child can find that letter that it was it was suggesting. And it's just and it builds and then it says, Great job. That those are some really great tips. I think um the first thing that comes to mind is that parents need to find a source that they feel really comfortable with. And our Utah Education Network has done a great job providing that. There's also, you know, other great libraries around the country that have provided those kinds of things. So if you find a place that you feel really confident, that's a great start. And that can help you develop some of these other kinds of things, um, especially things like learning more about the animation um, you spoke about that. What kind of things, when you were picking for this website, were you looking for in the animation? Were there some criteria that you used that could help parents hmm. assess their own? That's a that's a very good question. And I'll tell you about an example. I was on YouTube looking for um, just some little preschool alphabet videos to mm-hmm. show. And one of the things that popped up, and it was in Spanish, but were these animated guns. Oh, <laughs> and they were shooting A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and it just came from a Google, a YouTube search yeah. of the alphabet. It's no longer there. Yeah, I've I've since gone back to try to show the example of what not <laughs> to, do. to do, but it was so easy just to pull up. Yeah, and um, and that is one of the important. That's why finding a trusted site mm. is really really important, yeah. and let somebody else do the vetting for you. Yeah. And um, that's that's kind of critical. So obviously PBS Kids always a safe place to go. Yeah. Um if you're in Utah and you want to go to the Preschool Pioneer Library, um we encourage that. We've done a lot of work. Yeah. And it's in English and in Spanish. Um that's the other thing. It needs to be responsive to the family and the child's interest. And I think that's really important because especially developmentally, what's appropriate for a two-year-old isn't necessarily going to be the same that's appropriate for a five-year-old. So how do you address some of these developmental concerns when you were talking about finding the right games? What kinds of tips would you give parents to address those kind of developmental differences? That is a very good question. When I was talking about the different categories of games that we have on our website, the STEM games, the me games, um, 
the numeracy games as well as the um, alphabet games. I think that what what I often recommend is, um, you know, my son played Peep in the Big Wide World from the time he was three, really, and through his to eight, because his concept of the world was changing. And the game, you know, he was, some of the games he was playing were matching colors when yeah. he was three. But then as he was eight and learning more science concepts, he was really interested in light and shadows. It's um, taking it to talking about different literacies is, okay, now we're looking at science games yeah. and in a different level. So we've had a wide variety of interactive games that um, can appeal to children at multiple different levels. Well, and I think one of the thing, interesting things I've found is a lot of times children will self-select. And we don't, you know, if we have a trusted place we can go to and just allow the children to go there, they will self-select the games that are developmentally appropriate for them. I know I've worked with some autistic kids and their developmental level doesn't necessarily match their age level. And so they are engaging in a different set of games than, you know, their age would indicate, but they self-select very easily. So I think um, having that trusted place to go is ideal because then we can set the kids free and let them self-select if they need to. And that's really interesting. Um, I did a program with um, one of the librarians um, in Salt Lake County, and she was doing a program with autistic children and with um, iPads. And one of the the pieces we asked parents to give us some feedback, and one of the games or online activities that some of the autistic children were really enjoying was a game that my children played that drives me nuts, Mm, that um, is Tom the Talking Cat, (laughs) which I thought was so great because um, you say a word and Tom says it back kind of in in, a... Tom is is an animated cat and he maybe makes a face or does something interesting. But a lot of parents said that their autistic children really liked that feedback from an animated character and it just was absolutely fascinating to me. That's a key thing here is, you know, even though we have some trusted places to go, we can't just, you know, ignore it. We really have to engage ourselves. And a lot of these games, part of it is our engagement with it as well, of sitting next to them and playing with them and laughing along when it's, you know, A, B, C, D, watermelon and, and, and them seeing us interacting with this. So I think there's a level here, too, of um, not just interacting with the technology, but also interacting with the important people in their lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That is key. Yeah, and making sure that we as adults step forward and say, okay, how are we going to interact with this? And even as teenagers, we need to be doing the same things with our teenagers' games and the things that they're interacting with online. Uh, we shouldn't We shouldn't expect that we can just let them go <laughs> say, have fun. <laughs> 100% agree with yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing thing. But I really think there's some great resources out there, and I'm, I'm really grateful that um, there's good places, safe places for parents to go to, to kind of navigate this Huge worldwide web. It really is stuff. a web, isn't yeah, it? it is. It's a web of craziness, and especially for parents, there's there's so much that they have to learn and engage with. That I think that a little bit of help and is is useful, and and some great tips that we had today to to help people. Uh, parents kind of engage more fully with their children in these graves. Thank you so much, Lisa, for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. 
Lisa Cohen is the Utah Education Network's Community Partnerships Manager. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. Today, I'm in studio with Janice Bunker, Janet Bradford, and Myrna Layton to talk about why they love music. So, I grew up in the era of... LPs and vinyl records, okay? So we had a record player in our house, and I have a very strong memory of my mom putting on a record, and we were doing dishes. I'd see the kitchen. We were in there, and all of a sudden my mom said, oh, this is my favorite part, and my ears just perked up right then, and I was like, my mom's favorite part, and it was, I think it was uh, Elgar's Serenade for Strings. Is that by Elgar? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I listened, and all of a sudden I was like, wow, that's really cool. And from now on, that's one of my favorite parts because I knew it meant so much to my mom. She just loved it. Um, Another interesting experience I had, I mean, obviously we had music in our house as kids. We had my husband and I, when we first got married, we'd like save our money and buy CDs. And so we had a collection of CDs from all the different kinds of music that we liked. But he did not really like rock music. He was... We're both instrumentalists and, you know, he was not a big rock fan. And so um, I remember one day when I realized that all of this rock music that I had loved as a child, my kids had no clue about it. They didn't play it on the radio much anymore. And so my kids didn't know about this. So I was like, okay, okay, you guys have to listen to this song. So I played them Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. They were floored. There, it was like gigantic light bulb. All of a sudden, they were like, oh my gosh, this is so great. And I told them the story of how um, my sisters, um, they had like a neighborhood choir in their church, and it was all the kids in the neighborhood, and they did that for a talent show. They did Bohemian Rhapsody, <laughs> and the, the gun was a blow dryer, and they had all these, you know, it was just hilarious. But that one instance totally changed my kids' lives. In fact, I have a daughter whose music taste is extremely eclectic. She lives in New York City. She has a Pandora station that is the best Pandora station. has every one of those great rock songs I loved as a kid. She's got Kansas, and she's got Alabama, and she's got the Eagles. And I'm like, I contributed to my child's well-being because now when she needs a picker-upper or something, she can listen to all that favorite music that I introduced her to. And that made her curious to go find her own that she liked. And she doesn't just listen to rock. She she loves opera. She listens to classical music. She was in band. I mean, it's it can really, really enrich people's lives listening to music. You know, I love that. And that there's kind of a foundational principle there, I think. The fact that it it's music that you loved or your family loved and that was shared with you. So I love that kind of personal connection, right? You love this piece because your mom loved it. Your kids love this piece because you love it. And I think that that is kind of foundational because I know the music I love is the music that my mom shared with me, that my brother shared with me. And then I was went out and found my other tastes, right? But it, I think that's a really strong foundation. I mean... Do, do you perceive that to be true, Janet? How, how does that mesh with your experience? Well, I was just thinking my part of my love is film music. And the way you can really show that music is important is to 
play a film without the music. It's a totally different experience. Music heightens all of those emotional or crazy things that are going on in the film. Music can make you laugh. It can make you cry. It can make you love more. Um, It's just such a part of our lives. And I think some people just sort of don't even notice that music is in their lives until you stop and think, oh, yeah, I, you know, I'm not feeling great today. So I'm going to put on this music to help me out of my funk. Or um, as you are in a place singing together, it can it can actually lift how you're feeling. It can help you be a, strive to be a better person. I, I just think music is a core element of life that we all should love if we don't love. <laughs> no, Start should, should, you should, you should. Well, there's so many kinds yeah. of music. There has to be something you like. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, because there really is a, a wide range. I know. And as a music librarian, Myrna, you probably experience such such a wide range of, of music. I mean, what are, what are your tastes, your personal tastes? And then what, what other kinds of genres and things do you think are great? Well... To me, it's like, what isn't good? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a big fan of really twangy country and Western, but that's a personal taste thing, right? <laughs> yeah. But other than yeah. that, I, I really like um, I like the variety. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in world music and the, the instruments that come from other places that maybe sound strange to our ears when we first hear them. Um, I play in the gamelan at, at BYU, and that so music describe, is very describe clangy. Describe what a gamelan is for, a, a for gamelan our A gamelan is, um, uh, it, it's an ensemble. There's, um, we play Balinese gamelan, so from the island of, of Bali. And the instruments are mostly metallophones, so you they're like percussion okay. instruments. You hit them. They're made of brass. Most of them. There are others as well. So, but they're really kind of like a xylophone, or I mean, what would be like a Western instrument that you could make a connection to? I mean, it's really hard. I know. Yeah, yeah. it's. I mean, it, there are like a timpani or a, gongs. some gongs or something like that. Yeah, sort of. Some of those things are okay. are, are really close. They're they're cousins, right? <laughs> but the sound is is very jangly mm-hmm. and and there are kind of um things in the music that that sound just foreign to our ears and i remember when i first started playing um i was doing it with my daughter mainly to give her that experience and i'm the one who's still doing it 10 years later <laughs> <laughs> but at first i was like oh my goodness this is so noisy and then as you start becoming familiar with the music and you can hear the melody and you can hear the harmony and you can hear what's going on in the music, it starts to be really interesting to listen to. But a, a gamelan friend said to me early on, we were having a discussion just like this about music, and um, someone asked him, what's your favorite kind of music? And he said, well, Balinese music. And I thought, how could that ever be your favorite when you know there's so many kinds of beautiful music to listen to how could that be and now you know i'm like yeah i get that because i understand the music and it is beautiful and i i think that um any kind of music that we don't appreciate maybe it's just because 
we haven't really listened to it. And if we give it a chance, we can see why the people who make that particular kind of music do that. They find a beauty in it that we can find too. Yeah, I mean, I you look at you kind of look at the history of music and particularly popular music when you talk about all this wonderful music queen and and Kansas and all that. There's always been this history of you know the the older generation not liking the younger generation's music, right? You know, you think of the Elvis controversy of all the people thinking, "Oh no, Elvis is going to corrupt our children," right? And all of these kinds of things. So it's interesting to me that we have that kind of sense in our lives that, you know, there's music that is bad or music that is not good, but it really is just a matter of kind of appreciation or experience or understanding where you're coming from that makes it an important thing, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think music is just like anything else. It can be used in a good way and it can be used in a bad way, but I don't, you know, lyrics can promote things that are kind and helpful and wonderful and lyrics can promote things that are not kind and wonderful but I think the point is as a person you're missing out on a whole huge world if you're not listening to music yeah Yeah. (laughs) a really great world (laughs) that you can participate in while you're driving on the freeway and then you maybe won't be so mad at the person who just cut you off yeah I I don't know Well, I will say one of the greatest investments of my life was Sirius XM satellite radio so I can have every kind of music at my fingertips no matter what I feel like. So, you know, I can have classical. I can have the twangy country. <laughs> I, I do appreciate the twangy country because um, I'm a redneck hillbilly descendant. So I, I totally get that. But, you know, the rock, the classic rock, all that kind of stuff, you know, right, just right there at my fingertips. So I love that. It's a good thing. Thanks so much, ladies. I'd like to thank Janice, Janet, and Myrna for coming around the librarian's table with me today. We've had a great show. First, we spoke with author Tracy Hecht about early readers. After that, we heard from Kathy Newton about the importance of reading in your families. And finally, we discussed web games with education expert Lisa Cohen. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Mm